Would you please welcome up our good friend, Rabbi Jason Sobel. Give it up for Rabbi Jason. Shalom. How are you guys doing this morning? Can you say shalom? shalom? All right. It's so great to be here. Stephanie and I, my boys, Avi and Judah, we love Agora Bible and so happy to be part of this uh, community. And I just want to say thank you guys so much for welcoming us in. You guys are so blessed to have such awesome leaders in this community. Uh, Pastor Scott's such an amazing expository preacher and teacher. It's a little intimidating to stand in his place. And uh, not only that, you know, he's, you know, they have such a huge heart uh, for people. And so it's just such a joy to have you guys as, as friends and getting to know you and just the amazing things that are going on here at uh, ABF. I mean, my boys love it here. They love the camp so much. You did such an amazing job that uh, it was my son Avi's a birthday, a birthday, and we, I took him and one other friend to Magic Mountain. My younger son Judah decided to come to camp instead of going to Magic Mountain. <laughs> so I don't know. That says something. You guys, that says you guys are doing something amazing. That's incredible. And of course, every exciting what's going on in Mexico. But it's a you guys did it. It's a joy to be here with you uh, this morning and to be able to share a little bit uh, with you. Uh, you know, I grew up in the Holy Land, New Jersey, and uh, <laughs> we've been out here for about 10 years, and I grew up with Jews and Catholics, and uh, I was working in the music industry, had a supernatural encounter with Jesus, and came to know the Lord, and uh, I want to begin by sharing you, with you a little, little bit story. There was a Jewish community and a Catholic community that lived side by side in Eastern Europe a long time ago, and... Uh, they didn't always get along, and one day the Pope was going to be coming through, and the Catholic, uh, the heads of the Catholic Church said, you know, we're going to arrange a debate between the Pope and, you know, one of the rabbis of the town, and if the Jews win, we'll let them stay, but if they lose, they're going to have to leave. And so when the Jewish community heard about this, no one wanted to take this debate because no one wanted to be blamed if they lost for having, you know, their whole family's homes being lost. But one guy, his name was Yassel, he's kind of the town fool, he said, ah, Pope Schmope, I'll debate him. And so the day of the big debate came, and the Pope hears there's all these great scholars, rabbis in this town, and he's a little bit nervous, so he decides that he's going to make one change of the rule, that it is going to be a silent debate. And so the Pope gets up there, and he goes like this, okay, Yassel goes like this, the Pope goes like this, Yassel stomps his foot, and it goes like this. The Pope takes out the chalice and the wafer and does communion. Yussel takes a big, he takes an apple, takes a big bite, and the Pope says, that's it, it's over. Yussel, you've won, and everyone's looking as confused as you are right now. <laughs> so they go to the Pope, and they say, can you tell us what happened? We're confused. He said, yeah. He said, I said, God is three, but Yussel reminded me, Shema, that here, O Israel, the Lord is one. And then, you know, I said, God is everywhere, but Yussel stomped his foot, and he reminded me, but God's not in hell, and that's true. And, um, and then I took out the chalice and the wafer by which we were made righteous, and he took out the apple to remind us, yeah, but we're all still impacted by the original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, taking of the fruit. And so everyone was like, okay. And then the Jewish community is like, Yussel, you're our hero. We love you. We can't believe it. Oh. And, but tell us what happened. He said, it's very simple. He said, the Pope said, you have three days to leave. And I said, not one of us is leaving. 
He said, I want you to take your stuff and get out of here. And I said, we're staying right here. This is our home. And he took out his lunch, and I took out my lunch, and he called the whole thing off. <laughs> God has a good sense of humor, right? But in all seriousness, right, so many times, you know, we speak past each other. So many times, you know, growing up, you know, I thought Jesus was a nice Jewish boy who, was a nice Jewish boy who converted to Catholicism or Christ, you know, Christianity because I didn't know any Jewish kids named Jesus with mother's name Mary. And just like I'm Jason Sobel, I saw, thought this was the Christ family. Nice to meet you, Mr. and Mrs. Christ. I'm Mr. Sobel, right? I had no idea that Christ was the Greek Christos from the Greek, was translated into Hebrew, Messiah, Mashiach. It wasn't his last name. It was his title. And so there's so much confusion and misunderstanding and part of what we do with our ministry called fusion is we want to help connect the old and the new gentile and jew we want to have people have a road to emmaus experience you remember after jesus death these two disciples were walking this road called emmaus jesus opened the scriptures they didn't see they didn't understand who he was he was hidden from them and he began to show how everything in them pointed to him and they said that our hearts not burn as we as he opened the scriptures and show us how everything in the law of the writings and the prophets pointed to me. That's kind of our passion, to make those connections between the old and new, to see the Bible in HD, in living color. And we hope that you have a little bit of that taste of that here uh, this morning. And uh, we'd love your prayer. We just launched a TV show into the Arab world to 100 million Muslims. So a Jewish guy going to the Arab world, God only knows. He's got a good, good sense of humor. But that's how God works. And I really believe that in this season, God wants us living in the overflow. God doesn't want you to live out of the lack. He wants you to live out of the overflow. Let me tell you, we're called to be salt and light and impact the world. And if we are living on E, what do we have to give? What can we minister to the world around us? And even for our own selves, God wants us to experience the transformation that he has for us. And I believe one of the beautiful pictures of this overflow, of this transformation that he wants to bring in our life is found in one of my favorite passages, John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, open with me. This is Agora Bible Church, right? So let's open our Bibles, fellowship. Uh, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus, his Hebrew name is Yeshua, mother was there, and, and Jesus said, Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. Can you imagine him and his 12 fishermen going to this wedding? Uh, and when the wine ran out, Yeshua's mother said to him, they don't have any wine. And Yeshua, Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So what a beautiful picture of, the, of transformation of the water into wine. And what I want us to see this morning is as students of the word, that if there is a detail in the scripture, it is there for a reason. God doesn't waste words. If he put a word in the word, it's there for a reason. And we have to ask why. So did you ever wonder why the first miracle that was performed was performed on the third day of the week, why not the fourth day, why not the fifth day, the seventh day, that's a good number, number of fullness or completion. But what we have to understand is that the third day 
in Hebrew and Jewish thought, the third day is a day of double blessing. Now, why is it a day of double blessing? Because Genesis chapter 1, there's only, two, there's only one day where God calls it good twice, okay? And that is the third day of creation, Genesis 1.10, Genesis 1.12. God says it's good twice, and so Jewish people see it as a sign of double blessing, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And so many traditional Jewish Jews get married on the third day from ancient times to today. If you go to Israel, you'll see a lot of weddings on the third day, just out in the streets. It's beautiful. Not only is it a day of double blessing, it's also a day of revelation. Exodus 19 It says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp trembled. And Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. This is Mount Sinai. God gives the Ten Commandments. He reveals his glory on what day of the week? The third day. It's a day of revelation. And so John chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, it it says this. Well, at the end of this passage, it says in verse uh, 11, it says, This is the first of the signs in Cain of Galilee. He, meaning Jesus, revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So just like God revealed his glory through Moses on the third day, as we're going to see, Jesus is the greater than Moses, and so he reveals the greater glory of God on the third day. But the third day is also a day of redemption. Say redemption. Redemption. A day of redemption. It is a day of restoration. So redemption and restoration. But also, Jesus did what on the third day? Rose from the day. So it is a day of resurrection. And so we see this prophetically. Jesus fulfilling Hosea 6. One through three. It says, come, let us return to the Lord. He he has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will restore us that we might live in his presence. So Jesus was revived and restored on the third day. And we will ultimately be raised with him and experience that power of the resurrection we can begin to experience in our lives right now through him, through faith. Even Abraham, when he was told to offer Isaac, who was a type of, a type of Jesus, it was what day did he lift up his eyes and see the mountain from afar? Take a guess. The third day. So God does a lot. There's so much more we could talk about about the third day, but there's a reason for the third day. The The miracle on the third day was prefiguring the death and resurrection of Messiah by which his ultimate glory was going to be revealed. And the thing that we have to understand is that through him we experience salvation. But salvation is the beginning of a process. It's not the end of the process, meaning you can have salvation and not experience deep transformation in your life. God wants you to know him. He wants you to have the promise of eternity, to be with him forever, everlasting life. But let me tell you what, transformation begins here and now in this world. 
And he wants us to experience that's part of the overflowing life. He wants us to experience the overflowing abundance of the transformed life. And so there's several keys to experiencing this life of living out of the overflow. The first key to living out of the overflow, this is number two on your outline, is faith. Can you say faith? And trust. In Hebrew, faith is emunah and trust is abitachon. God wants us to live out of faith and trust to begin to experience the overflow. I love this, that the, the wine runs out. Mary comes to Messiah, comes to Jesus and says, what are you going to do about it? And he says, it's not my time. But you know what? Mary has faith as well as trust, that Jesus is going to do something. She came to him in faith, expecting that he was going to help. I don't know if you know this, but there's a special relationship between Jewish boys and their mothers. (laughs) I don't know if you know the four proofs that Jesus was Jewish. He was 30 and single and living at home. (laughs) He went into his father's profession. He thought his mother was a virgin, but most importantly, his mother thought he was a king and and God. (laughs) You know, my mom, she's the only one who believes that. (laughs) But here's the thing. The miracle didn't happen until everything runs out. And many times when we're placed in that situation, we respond in fear. We respond from a place of worry and anxiety. We're like, oh my goodness, everything's run out. What am I going to do? And let me tell you what, if you want to live a life out of the overflow, we have to move from fear to faith and from faith to trust and to believe God can show up. And in fact, that's when he shows up is oftentimes when things run out. And faith is about sight. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things what? Not seen. You know, I love it. Helen Keller said the worst thing in life is not to be born blind, but to be born with sight and have no vision. You can see on a physical level, but not be able to see on a spiritual level. And God wants us to learn to see. It's like in this time of the year, it's traditional for Jewish people to read about the 12 spies that are sent into the land. How can 12 go in, all see exactly the same thing? They all bring about a good report about the land. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's wonderful. Look at the size of the fruit. But how can 10 have no faith in God that he's going to give them the land? Because they go in and they see what? Giants. Only two have the faith to believe, you know what, it doesn't matter if there's giants in the land. God has promised. We have to understand is that 10 were living by fear, 2 were living by faith. We have to understand is that fear is actually a form of faith. Fear is the, like Steinfeld, bizarro world. It's the bizarro form. It's the opposite form of faith. It's the enemy's form of negative faith. Faith, negative, fear believes and imagines the worst possible future. Faith believes God for the best. And so we have to choose, are we going to live by fear and faith? And what we have to understand is that our mind actually works like a projector. A projector takes an image and it magnifies it. We either, magnifies, we either magnify our problems and our situations and our circumstances, 
or we magnify the Lord and his promises to us. The question is, which are we going to do? But we have to have faith. But we have to move beyond faith because many people have faith. Like the 12 spies all had faith in God. They believed that he was real. They saw his power, but only two trusted him. Trust is faith in action. We have to act on our faith. Twelve disciples in the boat, only one had faith and trust to believe he could step out and come to the Lord and walk upon the water. So not only do we need faith and trust to experience the overflow, but also the second key to living out of the overflow is obedience. Like obey is not a four-letter word in the negative sense. Right? She says, whatever he tells you to do, obey. Just do it. Whatever he says, just do it. So there's a pattern in the scripture. Faith, belief leads to obedience, and obedience leads to blessing. So we have to be faithful to do the will and the word of God into our life to experience the overflow. We have to put our faith into action. Faith without works is dead. The third key to living out of the overflow, I love this word. You got to get the guttural, the chah, you got to try and spit on your neighbor. Chutzpah, can you say it with me? Chutzpah. Chutzpah. That's a good Hebrew and Yiddish word. It means holy boldness or audacity. And chutzpah is one of the, one of the keys antidotes to fear along with love. Mary had chutzpah. Why? She wasn't going to take no for an answer. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Whatever. Whatever he says, do it. (laughs) There wasn't an option for him not to do something. He was going to do something. Obey your mom and dad. (laughs) Can't break the Ten Commandments, right? But part of faith or chutzpah You can spell it as you could say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. It's spelled risk. Now, my son, Avi, who will be at the table in the back with some information about us. He comes here. He loves it here. You know, when he was six years old, he was asked to try out for a part in a movie. And they said he did wonderful, that he did better than any other kids. But when it came time to actually get the role, we got the call. He didn't get it. At six years old, he was so upset. It didn't seem fair to him. They said he was the best. But the thing is that what happened was is that they were casting the child for a flashback scene, and the main actor, the adult actor, was blonde hair and blue-eyed, and that's not my son. <laughs> and so he couldn't get it at the point at that time, so he's crying. He's like, I hate this. This is so stupid. I'm never doing anything like this again. I said, Avi, listen, I love you. I said, what you have to understand, in our family, we have certain values. We have a culture in our family. And part of our culture and part of our values is that we celebrate risk. And so I'm proud of you that you took a risk. And so we're going to go tonight to your favorite restaurant, which at the time was Mangiano's, and we're going to celebrate. And he wiped his big tears from his eyes. He got all happy because the way through my son's heart is through food. And so we went to Mangiano's, and he said, Abba, tell the waitress why we're here. And I got to tell you, we live, unfortunately, in such a performance culture where most of us are so focused on celebrating success, but the reality is God celebrates the risk. 
Because if we don't take risks for God, we'll never know what's possible. And the truth of the matter is we're not responsible for the results. We can't, you know, we can't make anything happen apart from his grace. We can't transform anyone's life. We can't do anything great but by his grace and by his divine empowerment. And so it's not, the results are not in our hands. They're in the Lord's hands. Our responsibility is to step out of the boat and take the risk. And so I want to encourage you because all of us have fear in our lives. And part of the way we begin to overcome the fear is by stepping out in faith. So what are some of the areas in your life that God wants you to take a risk in? What are some of the places that he wants you to have chutzpah? Turn to someone and say, you have chutzpah. Turn to a friend and say, you are moving from fear to faith. And from faith to trust. Friends, if you live out of fear, it will rob you of the overflow of the abundance of the blessing that God has for you. It will paralyze you. God does not want us to live in that place. But we have to ask another question. Of all the miracles that Jesus performed, why is the first miracle that he performs the turning the water into wine, the mayim into yayin? The reason is, I think, is because the book of John is trying to demonstrate something very clearly. It's trying to give testimony that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Torah, of the laws of Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, it says, Moses makes a promise. He says, God will raise up for you a prophet like me, meaning Moses, from your midst. Then we have to ask ourselves, what is a prophet like Moses like? We have to go to Deuteronomy 34, the last verses. It says this, No prophet has arisen in Israel to this day, two things. One, whom God spoke to face to face, number one. So think about it. John 1, 1 can be translated in the Greek like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was face to face with God. Then it goes on to say, no one has seen God at any time, but the one who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made them know. Moses, when he asked to see God's kavod, his glory, only got to see the back of God as he passed by. Jesus was with him face to face eternally in the beginning. He's the greater than Moses. The second thing, who spoke, God spoke to face to face and who did all the signs and wonders like Moses did when he led Israel out of Egypt. So the book of John, the two things that make it unique, the unique Christology, the I am statements that point to his divinity. He's greater than Moses. But the other thing is the book of John is known as the book of signs. Seven miracles, some of which are not recorded anywhere else. The first is water into wine. Why? What's the first miracle Moses did when he came to redeem the children of Israel out of Egypt? He turned the what? Water into blood. So Jesus is saying, I'm the greater than Moses. I'm going, to rede- I'm going to begin the redemption just like Moses began the redemption out of Egypt with a similar sign, but he turns the water not into blood because he comes that we might live out of the overflow. John 10, I came that you might have life in what? Have it more abundantly. Have it to the fill. The promise, the su- promise of the kingdom is that we would have abundant life And the sign of the kingdom is the new wine. 
The Messiah says, Genesis 49, 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. To him will be the obedience of the nations. He ties his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine. His eyes are dull from wine. And so we see this promise of the Messiah connected to the wine. And then we see in Amos 9, 11 through 13, it says the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will be dissolved. There's a number of passages throughout the prophets that talk about wine as a symbol and connection to the messianic kingdom. Jesus said, I've come to bring this new wine to you, this sweetness to you. Amen? So then we see that he does it on the first day because he is the greater than Moses. Think about it for a moment. The first miracle like Moses, when Jesus dies and he's on the cross, how many hours of darkness are there? Three hours of darkness. Why? What's the ninth plague on Egypt? Three days of darkness. What's the tenth plague? The death of the firstborn. This is God's firstborn son, the Passover lamb of God, giving his life for us that we might be forgiven, that judgment might pass over, and we might find life just like Israel did in Egypt. But then we see... He performs the miracle with how many stone pots? Someone tell me. Six stone pots. Why six? Why not seven? The number of completion. Why not eight? The number of new beginnings. Because it's very significant. Man was created on what day of the week? The what? Sixth day. In Jewish thought, man fell on the sixth day. He ate from the tree on the sixth day. He lost six things as a result of the fall, which is on your handout. You can... Read it later. Number, we're at, you know, we're at number four, point three. And then we have Jesus and six. His first miracle involved how many pots? Six. When he was on the cross, guess how many hours he was on the cross for? Six hours. See a pattern here? It's not coincidence. And Jesus died. What do we call the day Jesus died? It's called what? The sixth day, he died on Good Friday, which was in the Hebrew calendar, is the sixth day. And he was pierced in six places. He was pierced, his head. What did he have on his head? Crown of thorns. You ever wonder why? First of all, we have to ask the question. We don't even ask the question, right? Why did Jesus have to die on a what? A cross. Because a cross literally is a tree. How did sin enter the world? We stole from the tree. The first man and woman stole from the tree. God puts back on the tree for you and me what the first man and woman could not. Then he has on his head a what? A crown of thorns. Because what's the sign of the curse of creation? The ground will produce what? Thorns and thistles. He's literally taking the curse on him to restore the blessing. He has his hands pierced. Why? It's our hands that stole from the tree. He has his side pierced. Who is the one who led him into temptation? It was who? The woman, the one taken from the what? Side. He has his feet pierced because the first messianic promise, Genesis 3.15, is that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Satan's like, you think you're going to crush my head with your feet? He's the original OG. He's the original gangster. He's like, I'm going to nail your feet to the tree. Let's see what you're going to do to me now. So two, six places, head, 
hands to one head, hands to side, one feet to. And Satan was mocking the promises of God, but God was actually using him to fulfill it. We have to also understand it. So man sins on the sixth day, and so it loses six things. So God sends the second Adam to die on the sixth day to restore everything that was lost, to reverse the curse and restore the blessing in our lives so that we can live out of the overflow that God intended. But in Hebrew, Hebrew is alphanumeric. You write letters with numbers. So the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet is a letter Vav. Can you say Vav? So Vav in Hebrew is literally the letter. It means one of the things Vav is a conjunction and. So the first place is the first place the vav occurs is, is in the sixth word, the, the beginning of the sixth word of the first verse of Genesis. Genesis one has seven words corresponding to the seven days of creation. The sixth word is God created the heavens, vav earth. Vav is the letter that connects heaven and earth. When we sinned, what did we do? We broke the connection between heaven and earth. But God sent Jesus on the sixth day, pierced in six places, to restore everything that was lost for us. Isn't God good? Next time we can talk about the mark of the beast in 666. It's interesting. There's a connection there. But I think part of the point here, God is wanting to connect heaven and earth, connecting heaven and earth so that we can live out of the overflow. So practically, how do we do this? What is the application for our lives? Number one, God wants to transform us. He transforms the ordinary into extraordinary. Think about it for a moment. We're blessed. We can go home, turn on the faucet, and what comes out? Water. Now, if you had a faucet where wine could come out of it, that was good. You wouldn't have to go to work tomorrow, right? It would be all good. You could just bottle that and uh, miracle wine. Wine, water is ordinary, but wine is extraordinary. And so this is a promise. This is this miracle points to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a what? New creation. The old has gone and the what? New has come. The new is here. God takes the ordinary. God loves to take the ordinary things and turn them into something extraordinary to make us new creations. God has not created you to be ordinary. God has created you to be extraordinary. So stop seeing yourself as so ordinary and plain because that is not how God sees you. And we struggle with that. You know, we struggle with seeing ourselves. You know, my son, my younger son, Judah, when he was young, he really looked up to his brother and everything Avi did, he wanted to do. If Avi jumped into the pool, even though he couldn't swing, he'd jump into the pool. If Avi jumped off something high, he jumped off. And he's like, Daddy, Daddy, me too, me too. So I jokingly used to call him Judah, me too. Now that's cute when they're little. But when you become adults, you don't want to be a me too. You don't want to be a photocopy or an imitation of somebody else 
or something else because imitation leads to limitation and that is not how God has created you to be. He's created you to be an original. He's created you to be an extraordinary individual, an extraordinary work of art. The problem is we struggle to really believe that. You know, We got to believe it. You know, I was, I, was, I was getting ready one morning and God spoke to me. He said, Jason, he said, I want you, you're, he said, Jason, you're my favorite son. And when you go out and speak, I want you to go tell people you're my favorite son. I said, Lord, I can't tell people I'm your favorite son because people are going to like get angry at me and think I'm prideful and they're going to take their Bibles and stone me. <laughs> and he said to me, Jason, he goes, you don't, you, you can't say that. Not because you're scared because you've said crazier things than that. But you can't say it because you really can't believe in your heart that you could be my number one son. You really can't believe that you could be that valuable and meaningful to me and that I could love you like that. He said, Jason, you're a father and I'm a father, but I'm not a father like you're a father. He goes, I'm the eternal and infinite father. You know, so let me ask you a question. He says, who do you love more, Avi or Jude? I said, I love them both. He said, listen, I'm eternal and infinite and because I'm eternal and infinite, I can have an infinite number of number one sons and daughters. <laughs> Friends, you are his number one son. You are his number one daughter. In his sight, he loves you like that because you're unique. You got to know that. If you want to live the overflow life, if you want to be extraordinary, you have to know that God loves you and sees you that preciously. I want you to turn to someone. I want you to say either you're the number one, you're his number one. Turn to someone and say you're his number one. You're his number one. You got to look in the mirror and believe that. Friends, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. One of the people that I, you know, I love the story of, there was this woman who got up one morning. She's a seamstress. She's riding the bus. She's tired coming home from work. They tell her she lives in the South. This is, the, you know, they tell her she's got to give up her seat to a white man. And she says, I'm not giving up my seat. They arrest her. She winds up connecting with this young pastor by the name of Martin Luther King. The civil rights movement is birthed because an ordinary seamstress on an ordinary day, no plans to do anything. She didn't get up that morning thinking, oh, I'm going to change uh, the, the civil rights in this nation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something pioneering so that, so that African Americans can have the same freedoms that they rightfully deserve. But you know what? God used an ordinary woman to do something extraordinary, and that's how God works. He uses fishermen and tax collector and everyday Joes to do incredible things, and God wants to do something incredible through you. But number two, he wants us to live, live we, need to, we need to be living out of an abundant life mindset, a John 10, 10 perspective, because God doesn't want us to live out of lack. He wants us to live out of the what? Abundance, the overflow. Listen, six stone pots, 20 to 30 gallons each, fill them to the brim. There's more wine than they could have possibly drunk for the end of the wedding. There was plenty left over for them for their future. When God multiplies the bread and the fish, there are what? Leftovers. Friends, there's always enough with God. No matter how difficult the situations, we have to understand God is generous and God is good and God's desire is to bless us. He, desires, he wants to especially 
prosperity of soul, spiritually and emotionally, relationally. God wants to bless us, but he also provides our needs according to the riches that are in his son. And we need to learn to live from a place where we don't look at the pots as being empty and focus on the problems. But let me tell you what, Mary chose to see the empty pots. She saw the possibility in the midst of the problem. Your problems are what contain the possibility for your future. We need those in our lives. And I've seen, have stepped out of faith and trust God so many times, even to this day. Number three, I want you to say, it's learning to see the good. Say it with me. Look, most people at the wedding, if they knew the wine had run out, they would have been focused on the oi. Oi, I can't believe it. The guilt, the shame, what's going to happen? This is horrible. Shonda, this is terrible. The shame and embarrassment, what they would have felt, the, the hospitality in Middle Eastern culture is huge. And it would have been horrible. And a common mistake that we make is the, we say this phrase, right? Seeing is? Friends, it's not true in the kingdom. It's the exact opposite. Believing is seeing. Most people would have looked at the empty pots and they would have been like, you were out of luck. Should have thought ahead. But Mary, who could believe, who would have thought water into wine? I would never have thought that. But Mary, you know, people couldn't see it, but she believed, her believing led to her seeing the miracle. Friends, our faith shapes our situation and our circumstances. And so the truth of the matter is, Mary believed and saw. She didn't see and believed. Faith is the evidence of things, hope for the substance of things, what? Faith is about seeing what is not there. And the truth of the matter is, you will never be more than you can see. You'll never be more than you can see. If you can't see who God has created you to be, your identity in him, if you can't see the potential that he has placed within you, you will never fully become it. You have to see, you have to have the faith to believe, to risk, to do things. Seeing leads to being. I love Psalm 27, 14. You're beginning this series on the Psalms. This is one of my favorite. I would have despaired unless I believed I what? Would see the what? Goodness of God in the land of the living. Do we believe that we will see God's goodness in our life no matter what situations and circumstances can tell you, I tell you, there's been days in ministry where we're coming down to the wire and we don't know how we're going to pay the bills and, you know, and I just, pre- you know, I just press into God and he always shows up. Everything owes its existence to the goodness of God. God is good all the time. We have to see his good. We have to learn to see his good in every situation and circumstance. And this leads to point four. Say this with me. Pressing leads to blessing. Friends, I got to tell you, there's been, I've been in a season where I felt like I'm in the Garden of Gethsemane being pressed, squeezed. 
but it's the pressing that leads to the blessing in our lives. Think about it. I never would have walked through a vineyard and thought, wow, I could take those grapes and I could crush them underneath my feet and I could let them sit for a while and ferment and I am going to produce something like a fine wine out of it. See, in Hebrew, Hebrew is alphanumeric. Numbers, as we shared, have numerical value. You write numbers with letters in Hebrew. And so the numerical value of the word wine is 70. The numerical value of the word for mystery is 70. And the numerical value of the word eyes is 70. Do you think there's a connection there? What's the connection? The connection is that grapes have an inner potential, an inner essence in them that you can't see. It's hidden. On the surface, you can't see that. But when the grape is crushed, the hidden, the hidden potential is released and our eyes can see the fulfillment. And so we have to train our eyes to see the hidden, to see in the midst of the pressing that God is going to bring blessing. The pressing brings out our potential and purpose like a grape or an olive that is crushed. God wants to squeeze out every bit of potential, every bit of of purpose in your life, but you have to go through the crushing to create something greater. Listen, if you're okay living a mediocre life and not doing anything great or significant, maybe you can get by without less crushing. But if you want the fullness of what Jesus purchased you for and created you for, there is a crushing that we have to experience. Number five, part of the miracle that they experienced was that it was new old wine. The wine was brand new, but it tasted old. There's two parts of this. There's super, so wine, new wine is not good wine. Old wine is better wine. They said you, people bring out the, the good wine first and the lesser wine later. But there, part of the miracle is that there was a supernatural acceleration in the maturation of the wine. And I see there's a lot of young people here, so I want to encourage you. That God can take you and give you gifts, talents, and abilities and mature those in your life at an accelerated rate. He can give you wisdom, gifts, and abilities beyond your years or experiences if you lean into him and trust him for that. And for any of us, it's true. But part of the miracle, too, is what it says. It's trying to show a, a key characteristic of the kingdom. Matthew 13, 52, it says this. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. In the kingdom, there are new treasures and old. A scribe for the kingdom, someone who is learned and skilled in dividing the word of God and understanding God, a disciple who is mature, knows how to connect the old and the new and doesn't settle for one or the other. It's kind of the reason why we started a fusion. We felt many Jews settle for the old, many Christians settle for the new, but it's old and new coming together, Jew and Gentile, old and new coming together. That is the full inheritance. Don't settle for half an inheritance. The fullness of what God has. And then finally, I love this. Now the head waiter did not know when, where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. 
And the head waiter tasted the water that had become wine, and he calls the bridegroom and says to him, everyone brings out the good wine first whenever they are drunk, then the worse, but you've reserved the good wine for now. Friends, I want to encourage you, the best is yet to come. I don't care whatever these doomsday people saying, the world economy is going to crash, the world is... Listen, whatever the case might be, whatever happens, the bottom line is for our lives, even in the midst of the famine in Egypt, God raised up Joseph. So whatever happens, it doesn't, God will bless us and use us. The best is yet to come. The sweetest times, the best time, they are just around the corner. God has something better. Hope is the belief that our future is going to be better in the past. Turn to someone and say, the best is yet to come. Friends, we got to believe it. The best is yet to come. We are called to be people of hope. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Something's better. We can transcend and rise above our situation and our circumstances. Close with this story. Yitzhak Perlman, one of the greatest classical violinists, was playing a concert. And at the end of, in the middle of the concert, one of the strings of his violin broke. And everyone thought the concert was going to have to stop. He was going to have to change his strings. But he remodulated and reformulated, and he continued to play the concert on only three strings. And he, when it's done, people gave him a standing ovation. And one of the reporters asked him, they said, how is it possible for you to have played on only three strings? And he said, I'm a professional musician, and my responsibility is to make music with what remains. Friends, some of you might feel like in life you've only been given three strings. Or maybe your situation you feel like two strings or one string or God forbid no strings. But let me tell you what. God can make music with what remains. If you give it to him, the strings of your life, he will make something beautiful out of it. And if you've ever seen Yitzhak Perlman, you know when he walks onto the stage that he walks on with crutches and braces. He contracted polio as a child, grew up in a lot of pain. He has to take off all the apparatus before he can play. Most people having such a, disabil- such a debilitating disability as he had never would have aspired to believe that they could become one of the greatest musicians in the world To make music with what remains means to live out of the overflow. It's to take what God has given you, even when it seems it's not much left, and understand that by his grace, we can transcend the loss and make music with what remains. Because God didn't create you to be ordinary. He created you to be extraordinary. Turn to someone and say, God didn't create you to be ordinary. He created you to be extraordinary. Friends, you got to believe this. Saba, we just thank you for your son. He is the greater than Moses. He is the second Adam. And he gave his life 
on that cross, on that tree, so that the curse can be broken, that the blessing can be restored, that the connection between heaven and earth can be reestablished. And if you're here today and you feel like you're living out of the lack and you spiritually feel disconnected or distant from God, he wants to come and fill you and encounter you All you have to do is say, Jesus, come into my life. Come into my heart. I believe you gave everything and died and rose for me so that I can be filled and overflow and rise above and have your abundance and to have your joy. And if you're here today and you have fear, we just say it's time to begin to not to live by fear anymore. Don't believe the lies that he has created you right now. I just ask God that whatever the emptiness is, that you would come and fill, spiritually fill, emotionally fill, relationally fill, physically feel, fill, make whole, heal, restore, resurrect from the dead. I speak blessings over everyone here today. Just believe God. Just what, wherever you at, just ask him to come and fill you to overflowing. And I just say, Sim Shalom Tova Ubracha Hen that God should establish upon you his peace, mercy, wholeness, goodness, kindness, in the name of Sar Shalom, Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. 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 Well, hopefully you were blessed like I was from the word this morning. That was a good meal. That was a good meal. Amen. Let's thank Jason one more time before we go here this morning. Let's make choices this week to live in the overflow with some, with some chutzpah. Am I getting that right? All right, with some chutzpah. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.